Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about family secrets, a palm reading, a prince, and more, as we preview my new podcast, Relative Fiction. Stay tuned. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Portland, Oregon. Today, listeners, in lieu of a traditional Sagittarian Matters episode, I wanted to share with you a preview of my new podcast, Relative Fiction, which I made with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Relative Fiction is an adaptation of my graphic memoir, Calling Dr. Laura, which talked a lot about family secrets. But this podcast, discovers and uncovers the layers of family and additional secrets I discovered after the book came out. It's going to eventually be six episodes published weekly, but for today, I have episode one for you. If you like this one, please go subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts to Relative Fiction. Please share it with your friends. Please rate it and review it, especially if you like it. I would really appreciate it. I've been working on it for a year and a half. Producer Chris and I are going to be back soon with some Sagittarian matters for you in the traditional format. But in the meantime, for this week, please sit back and enjoy episode one of Relative Fiction. We have changed some names to protect people's privacy. But all of these stories are true. My father was dead. He died of colon cancer when I was still a baby, I was told. When I asked about him, I only got smatterings of details. But there were details. He drove a fancy sports car. He was also very handsome, like a sexy Belushi. My mother assured me I was better off with him gone, because he was not a good guy. He was a con man. So yeah, I grew up believing all of that. Down to the part of a sexy Belushi even being a thing. How long ago was it, Nicole? Was it 2003? Okay. Perhaps? Like January of 2003? I believed all of it. Until my friend Elvis surprised me with a birthday gift. I met her in Portland, Oregon, where I had moved after high school. Were we dating at the time? (laughs) Okay, yes. At the time, we were dating. Yeah, and your birthday was coming up, and I was like, oh, I know what'll be fun. I was flipping through the the Portland Mercury and saw an ad. It was like a two-for-one deal for palm reading. It was supposed to be a fun, possibly light experience we could laugh at and retell. Much like we're trying to do now, 17 years later, with the help of my producer, Claudia. You know, paint us a picture. It wasn't supposed to alter the entire course of my life. I was like, this is going to be my little surprise for her. When we arrived at the address the palm reader had given Elvis, there wasn't a neon sign on the window in the shape of a palm or anything that would make it even look like a business. We entered what appeared to be someone's home. Oh, it must have been. Yeah. I feel like she had a big screen TV with like football on mute. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember her living room? I just remember being very like plain. Nothing like 
stood out. I do remember like noticing that there was like a crucifix on the wall and just being very taken back by that or like or my brain couldn't understand how psychic phenomenon and palmistry melded with religion. She was wearing a crucifix. Yeah. Whatever I'm putting onto this woman is that she was both a devout Catholic who was trying to save her soul from the devil, but also had a gift Uh that she wanted to use responsibly to help people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So this devout Catholic palm reader goes on to tell me I'm going to meet an older man and have three pregnancies, but only two children. I remember this clearly because it was so absurd. Elvis, on the other hand, was having trouble remembering her fortune. I have no recollection of what she told me about my hand. <laughs> she said you had a dark energy. You Ooh. were into something dark. Oh yeah. Okay. That sound that rings a bell. That's so funny. And then we like laughed about it afterwards in the car. Yeah. Well, she told both of us that we were going to meet men. <laughs> Cause neither of us told her we were gay. Right. Right. She didn't pick up on that. She picked up on your dark souls, but not the gayness. Yeah. Uh huh. Not the interesting. Every prediction was so outlandish and so very wrong. But she pronounced them with heavy conviction. For example, she insisted, I mean, like, really dug in her heels that Elvis was on drugs. Yeah. I'm like, I might be iron deficient, but I'm not on drugs. I sat politely through my own reading, nodding my head and feigning enthusiasm for my future heterosexual life with an old man. But then she announced, very matter-of-factly, that I should talk to my father more often. That's going to be hard, I said, because my father's dead. She doubled down. The man you think is your father might be dead, but your real father is very much alive. Your father is very much alive. Those words sunk in, and I immediately felt their truth. I know it sounds ridiculous. The palm reader was wrong about literally everything else. But this, it felt real. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, I'm Nicole J. Georges, and you're listening to Relative Fiction. If you tell a lie enough, right, it becomes the truth, and that's the only thing you know. This is terrible of me, but because of his history, the first thing I thought was, does he have another family? And I always told them, I said, someday that girl with the eyes like yours is going to knock on the door. You're going to get really different stories from different people. There's not going to be a central story in some ways, and that's the story. Like, how could all these things happen to us growing up, and no one noticed? It made me really question, did all of this happen the way I remember it? With the help of my producer, Claudia Meza, we'll be delving into the heart of one of the most nebulous mysteries of the universe, family. Chapter one, calling Dr. Laura. A lie can create an intricate house of mirrors, quickly becoming difficult to know which reflection is real. And once you lose your orientation of what's real, everything begins to feel like a conspiracy. As a kid, I knew there was something I wasn't being told. I observed the adults looking over my head and cutting each other off mid-sentence around me. So at one point, I seriously considered I might have been adopted. I don't really look like anyone else in my family. My two older sisters, Liz and Megan, shared the same father. And when they were teenagers, they both looked like carbon copies of our mother. High cheekbones, short blown out hair, and they all tower over me around 5'10", while I'm 5'2 and a half in my straightest posture. My mother always claimed I looked like her grandmother, Sito, 
But the only picture of her was when she was 90, where she appeared to be a soft little bundle of wrinkles in a shawl. So, tough sell. But despite these doubts, I knew I wasn't adopted. Just the finances alone, it didn't add up. Why would a single mother of two, who was barely covering basic expenses, willingly bring in another mouth to feed? Even if she desperately wanted to adopt a short child, she'd never get approved. So this possibility that my father was alive? Yes, this seemed more likely. This must be the lie I sensed all these years. This had to be it. I didn't tell Elvis about my suspicions when we talked about our readings later on. Yeah, I don't think you said anything in the car. I think in the car ride, we were just laughing mostly at like the woman's prediction about the future men in our lives and that I was involved in the dark arts. Yeah, I was like, sorry for your totally bunk birthday gift. <laughs> I waited almost a year before I went looking for the truth. But I did start telling my chosen family about this possible newfound plot twist in my life. I wasn't in any rush to actually go investigate anything, but my friends kept pushing. Had I asked my mom about it? Did I follow up with my sister? Should I maybe go to another psychic? They were not happy living with a cliffhanger. And I would have waited even longer had it not been for their constant barrage of questions on the matter. They just couldn't understand why I wasn't running towards the prospect of being lied to my entire life by the people I trusted most. Eventually, peer pressure won, and I visited my oldest sister Liz at her apartment in San Francisco. Liz and I are close, but she did not want to be interviewed for this podcast. She has done her time with our family story, so this is my most faithful retelling of what transpired that day. The first thing I need you to know about Liz is that she's always been the cool one in our family. We all looked up to her. I think even my mom. She's a quick-witted, painter-turned-executive with a heart of gold. Liz halted all communications with our mother in the early 2000s after a terrible coming-out experience. So by the time I started snooping around, she no longer held any loyalty to our family. I knew she'd talk. Also, for close to a month around the same time period, she had been sending me cryptic texts and emails saying she had something important to tell me. Fine, universe, I thought. Let's get this over with. Back at Liz's apartment, after roughly half a beer, I interrupted our polite conversation with, Hey, so is my dad really dead? Tears started rolling down her face as she confessed, I always wanted to tell you. I felt a numbness settle into my body. I wasn't angry. I wasn't anything. But I did reflexively also start crying, seeing my sister so distraught. Liz begged me not to hate her, but honestly, that option hadn't even occurred to me. And she, of course, wanted to know how I found out. Oh, I said, that's kind of a crazy story. My friend Elvis is still in awe that she was the first domino to fall on the Rube Goldberg machine that uncovered this lie. It is a really funny, like, catalyst, basically answering an ad in the back of the paper that I altered the course of your life. <laughs> Thank you for being a pawn of the universe. It is my sworn duty. <laughs> Truly, my family, they were like, we knew you'd figure it out eventually. And I was like, I did not figure it out. <laughs> I absolutely did not figure it out in any way. 
Like uh, that would, none of this was on me. Yeah. You're so smart. Yeah. We knew you'd put the pieces together. <laughs> Like, that's not true I hate to break it to you <laughs> I'm just gay and so it made I was eventually going to go to a clairvoyant as part of my my legal duty as a gay person it's a, it's a rite of passage slash a normal Sunday <laughs> you would think finding out my father was alive would have me knocking on every door trying to find him but that's not what happened I'm a graphic novelist by trade and I've dedicated a good part of my life to documenting the minutiae and enigmas of my daily experience. So my first instinct was to draw. I became obsessed with wanting to get to the bottom of why I had been lied to in the first place. Because if they got away with this, what else had I been lied to about? I knew that reevaluating all I had been told growing up was gonna be hard because this lie involved my mother. And my mother has lived a life of incredible stories. Like, she supposedly grew up with bodyguards to protect her from the mafia. In Ohio. She'll never let me forget that she was a model with a 24-inch waist until she got pregnant with me. She also, at one point, had a horse farm in Kentucky. And to this day, she stubbornly claims to have invented leather jeans. And I'm not saying she's constantly pulling one over on people or even me for that matter. What I am saying is that if you're charming enough, you can make nearly any story believable. And my mom, she's very charming. So charming, in fact, she once picked up a prince at the mall. Here's my sister, Megan. Okay, so I don't really remember. I just know they met while she was a salesperson at JCPenney. I was way too young to remember any of this. So Megan is providing the details. Well, I remember him as being short and petite and always wearing the long white robe and wearing the wrap on his head and speaking very broken English. I just remember Fahan had a lot of fancy cars, Cadillacs, lots of cash. So you guys were driven around in Cadillacs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we had drivers. Megan is about a full decade older than me and a couple years younger than our oldest sister, Liz. Growing up, she was always my most reliable narrator. She craves balance, boundaries, and normalcy. She's a Girl Scout leader, a devoted mom, and a lifelong volunteer. Also, she pretty much raised me. I trust her. But all good lies are grounded in truth. You know, there was like cash being handed to us. Every time we turned around, you know, we would go shopping with $100 bills. Kind of the problem was, you know, we were from Ohio, like we were super big dorks. So we were kind of at a loss of what we were supposed to do to be cool. Our mom dated the Saudi Arabian prince in the early 80s. She was raised in an upper class, second generation Syrian household. So finding a prince to bring home, she was stoked. Megan was barely a teenager then, so she mostly remembers being mortified by this romance. I mean, it was, you know, just that white, floor-length robe. And I remember being so embarrassed when he would be somewhere where we were, and I was like, oh my gosh. When she first met Prince Farhan, mom was working at the jewelry counter at a JCPenney's. If a meet-cute with a prince set at a JCPenney's in Ohio is beginning to wither your suspension of disbelief, trust me. I get it. Most stories involving my mother solicit this reaction. But this story about her dating a prince? For more than a decade,
kings, princes, presidents, and ambassadors have been going to Cleveland, Ohio, specifically to the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. It's a private, not-for-profit specialty care medical center that spread over about 100 acres of Cleveland's east side. That's an NPR News report from 1984. This mom story is true. It all started when King Khalid, then Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, began his heart treatment at the Cleveland Clinic back in the early 70s. According to a 37-page report released by the facility, King Khalid had his own wing on the eighth floor, and it was outfitted with quarters for cabinet ministers, generals, and private cooks, so that while recovering from heart surgery for roughly a month, King Khalid could handle all Saudi affairs out of this location. But the clinic didn't just provide office space. There were security personnel from the Secret Service, the State Department, Saudi Police, the Saudi Royal Guard, Cleveland Police Intelligence, and the Explosive Ordnance Division of the United States Army. An armed guard was stationed on the roof of the clinic 24 hours a day, and there were caches of high-powered rifles and machine guns on the roof and on the floor where the King's Suite was located. But that's not all. They brought in goat's milk from Amish dairymen in nearby Burton, Ohio. Hospital personnel learned to prepare rice in 12 different ways. The King's Suite itself was also lavishly redecorated, furnished with art from his private collection, along with some that had been pulled from the Cleveland Museum of Art. The clinic really went all out, and word spread far and wide that they could not only keep you alive, but also keep you very, very comfortable. So yes, at any given point, a princess, prince, or king could walk by your JCPenney jewelry counter in Ohio. And if you were charming enough, you might even get a date. But we didn't know any of this when our mom started dating her prince. All we knew was what our mom told us. And, as Megan recalls, all mom told us was... We're moving to D.C. with Fahan. He and I are working together at the Watergate buildings. We're going to have a great life there. We lived in a townhouse with Farhan and his two kids. He had a son named, like, Jamal or Jameen. He had a daughter named Remy. His son was a few years older than Megan. His daughter was a few years older than me. And then this cousin, his, I don't know if it was his cousin or his nephew... If you're keeping track, that's four Saudi royals and four big dorks from Ohio. So eight people all together in a three-bedroom townhouse. It was very crowded. I did not like it. No, we did not like it. If you've seen Coming to America, you pretty much know this story. Except in our version, Eddie Murphy gets cut off from his family's fortune for shacking up with a divorced woman who also has three kids. And then mom had to go get another job, and he was kind of waiting. They were waiting a long time for the money to come. And in the meantime, the cars got taken away. By this point in our lives, cars getting repossessed was not unusual, but food scarcity was. Here's Megan again. I grew to hate his son. I remember we didn't have lots of food to eat, and he would not stop eating, and I was very angry about it. Farhan stuck around for six more months without any money. And then he took his two kids and his cousin-nephew and bounced. I was so excited when he left. And we could not eat pork when he was there. And I remember he left right before Thanksgiving because we got a ham for Thanksgiving. And that was the best ham I've ever had in my life. It's a good story, right? I mean, it's hard to believe that I nearly starved as a child 
living with a Saudi prince in a three-bedroom townhouse in Bethesda. But it's true. Like I said, I get all my good stories from my mom. And growing up, it was hard sometimes to pick out the truth from the fantasy. Some of the crazy things she told me were bizarrely true, like the Saudi Arabian prince. That was real. I mean, we're pretty sure it was real. And some of the stories were flat-out lies. The craziest story my mom ever told me, though, was that my father was dead. And I believed that one for 23 years. Coming up after the break. I'm Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Nicole, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Laura. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Remedios Martinez, Rachel Bernard, Laura Perry, Emily Helmus, Whitney Gecker, Debbie Pressman, Caitlin Olds, Jamie Rabin, Will's best friend Evie, Emma, Amy Mariaskin, Kelsey Eiston, Anna Seidel, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Christy Herod, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, Please send $5, $5 billion, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. It's Hell Books on Venmo. H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared, that's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Welcome back to Relative Fiction. After visiting my sister Liz in San Francisco and finally getting the truth about my dad, I needed a break. So I kind of ghosted my mom for a few months. I wasn't exactly mad. I just didn't know how to even begin picking up a box filled with that many emotions. It appeared much heavier than my lift capacity. It also felt strange that I found out about my dad through a psychic, and I didn't want to tell my mom that either. You see, when the Saudi prince left her, probably the most broke she had ever been in her life, she dealt with it all by becoming more and more reliant on psychics. Here's Megan again. And she would have these, you know, like, I don't know, they would print a report. I mean, she based tons of decisions of our life on psychic readings. Like they were very influential with decisions she made. I thought it was weird that Nicole went to see a psychic because we always kind of felt like those were really bad decisions to include psychic readings in your parenting style. My mom racked up debts with psychic hotlines and got equally very into astrology and the tarot. A local witch became her confidant and also my babysitter. That's definitely a story for a later time. Maybe it was my mom's way of feeling in control, or maybe wizards were the only people who truly believed her. Over the years though, my mom reinvented herself as a super conservative Catholic. And somewhere in my youth, we went from magic and astrology to Christian family radio. Now, she even thinks meditation is wicked because it takes your mind off of Christ. I was also keeping secrets of my own. At the time, my mom didn't know I was gay. 
and I saw from watching my older sister before me that that wasn't going to turn out well. I felt like not only would I be informing her that Lucifer himself had revealed her biggest secret, but also that he was aided by my gay lover. It was a lot. So I stuffed the family secret box in a corner, tried not to look at the meaning that was oozing out of the cracks, and went on with my own secret gay life. A few months of pretending nothing had happened went by, and then my phone started blowing up. My mom called me over and over again, day and night, wanting to know where I was and when she could get me a plane ticket. She knew something was up. My grace period was over, and the time had come for me to decide something that many people struggling with complicated families have had to decide on a yearly basis. Should I go home for Christmas? Not having anyone parental in my life to talk to about all of this, I found the next best thing. No, not another psychic, but someone whose voice had been there with me for a very long time. Dr. Laura is on right now. Yes, I called Dr. Laura Schlesinger, the no-nonsense queen of hyper-conservative talk radio. And realize you come from a pretty sick, stupid, weak family. To help me figure out what to do about my all-nonsense, hyper-conservative mom. As a queer feminist who draws her feelings for a living, I'm not the expected demographic of people seeking advice from a right-wing conservative talk show host. Yet, here we are. This fascination I have with Dr. Laura takes a lot of people off guard. She's controversial, so and for good reasons. Because these days, most women out there are pigs. Are you shocked that I said that? Do you think I'm talking about you? I might be. She's hard to defend, and I'm not going to. But I'll try to explain why I called this woman for advice during one of the most confusing times in my life. My mother is the reason I began listening to Dr. Laura. It's what she usually had playing when we were in the car together. At a certain point, it became too much even for my mom, who was way more politically aligned with Dr. Laura's views, but I still kept listening. You're exactly right. One of the reasons this bimbo gets away with cranking out babies with different dads is because everybody's going, isn't this cute? We have to support it. This hurts children. And I was able to because I took Dr. Laura with a giant grain of salt, agreeing to disagree with her more hardline views on race, homosexuality, abortion, premarital sex, and, you know, the general role of women in most relationships. I was already used to doing this with my own mother, who also had very different takes on a lot of things. And I still love her. But where my mother and Dr. Laura differed was their views concerning parenting and personal responsibility. I have to beg, plead, yell, threaten to get parents to parent. They're spending their time married, divorcing, shacking up, moving, leaving, having two careers, daycare, nannies, babysitters, drugs, off in their own worlds, getting defensive. I liked hearing adults get lectured about their obligations to parent their children. It illuminated something I didn't even know I needed or should expect from a person in charge of my care. Dr. Laura asserted that parents were supposed to make their children feel safe. This was a radical concept to me. I grew up in chaos. And here was a strong woman made of hairspray and rules telling everyone to grow up and take some responsibility for their actions. Even when I didn't agree with her rules, I found comfort in her certitude. She makes her fans and podcast subscribers feel like family. In fact, when you pay to subscribe to her podcast, you earn the title of Dr. Laura family member. I appreciate that. All right, sweetheart. A lot of hugs. 
Thank you. And thank you so much for everything you've done for me over the years. I've listened to your show since I can remember. And anytime I had a hard time, especially after losing my mother, it was just so comforting to hear you give people advice. This is going to sound absurd to some of you, but this radio show was the closest thing I had to an actual adult in the room growing up. So when I found out that my mom had been lying to me about my dad and her entire side of the family had gone along with it, as well as both of my sisters, who else did I have left? You transcribed this call, and we have a trained Dr. Laura surrogate here who is going to come out. (laughs) This is years and years of study, and we're going to have you guys reenact the actual phone call. This is word for word what happened, right? I taped it. This is it. Back in 2013, I was a guest on the variety radio show Livewire. I had gone on to publicize my graphic memoir. The book documents parts of my childhood in the period shortly before and after finding out my father was alive. In place of the tape I lost, the producers had the idea of recreating the titular conversation. I'm Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Nicole, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Laura. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. I had a question. Mm -hmm. Families are a lot like gangs. We keep each other's secrets. This book was me singing like a canary and I snitched on everyone. I didn't write it out of malice. I just needed to reclaim my own narrative. My sisters understood. My mother, not so much. I found out this year that my mom's been lying to me about my family being dead, my father being dead. Okay, He's actually slow alive. down, slow down. All right. and do you my mother's Amazon profile shows 17 reviews for everything from chocolate tahini halva, which she headlines as a treat for your mouth, to Amazon's music service, where she simply states, I love it. Nearly every item was left a glowing review and awarded nothing less than five stars. She's posted only one negative review. The single star she left for my book, Calling Dr. Laura. The dawn of the family was not happy. Was she married to your bio dad? Yes. And how long was she married to your bio dad? I think two or three years. And what happened? Um, I think he was, from what I know, he was sort of a con man, and she eventually kicked him out to be with someone else and warned my sisters not to ever tell me, and that the new story... I don't want to know that part yet. Okay. Because I know you think that's so important. Okay. Why, I'll never understand, but okay, so she got rid of the con man. That someone else she dumped my father for was Prince Farhan from the JCPenney counter. I didn't dare bring up the prince. Dr. Laura already appeared to be annoyed with my life. You're mad at her. Let me ask you another question. When she got rid of your bio, Dad, did she move you out of the country, out of the state, out of the city? No, she... Okay, that's all. So, if anyone knew her at the time, they'd know where to find her, and, well, she didn't move, right? She was in the same town. Yeah. And she didn't throw him out till you were two, right? Yeah. So no matter what she told anybody she was going to tell you, he knew you were alive and he didn't even contact you. Go ahead. I want to hear the rest of your story now while you're so mad. Oh, well, the other small part of him finding me is that she moved out of state a couple years later and changed my last name. Okay. Did you hear me ask all those questions? I explained that I wasn't angry with my mom. I was just confused about what to do. Dr. Laura pointed out that even though my surname had been changed and I had been transported to another state, my father could still find me if he wanted to. 
so I was probably better off. I should appreciate the stability of my family life today instead of dredging up the past. That was the gist. Also, we didn't capture this in the reenactment, but I began crying like a baby about two minutes into the call. Saying it all out loud to an adult, a parent figure, I think this is when the weight of my family lying to me for all those years finally hit home. And any semblance of irony I might have been hiding behind as an excuse for calling in, that vanished the moment I heard her voice. It turns out I was not too cool for Dr. Laura. And in true Dr. Laura fashion, she ended her verbal browbeating with a Christian side hug. You can control how much destruction that information will ultimately cause you by how you handle today. Okay, thanks. So go have Christmas. Okay. You suffered enough. Go have Christmas. Laura Faye Smith. Nicole Georges. Yes, Dr. Laura made me cry. But I took her advice. I went home for Christmas that year and tried my best at not being gay and having a dead father. Why, you ask, would anyone do any of this? Why would I even want a relationship with my mom at that point? And where the fuck was my dad? I wanted to find my father. I wanted to ask him, did he abandon me? Was he a con man? Did my mother invent leather jeans? I wanted the truth, all of them. I was willingly stepping into the house of mirrors with hammer in hand. If family is a story we tell ourselves, then what happens when those fictions break apart? I was going to find out. In the next episode, The Birth of a Lie. Our apartment looked like it had been like broken into, kind of like ransacked. I thought it was weird at the time, but I had constructed one of two kind of backstories to maybe explain it, and neither one was that Nicole's dad wasn't dead. Because <laughs> who, who could construct that? If you like our podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It really helps people find us. Relative Fiction is brought to you by Oregon Public Broadcasting. It's hosted by me, Nicole J. Georges, and written and produced by Claudia Meza and myself. Sage Van Wing is our executive editor. All original music by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Sound design and audio editing by Claudia Meza. And all mixing and mastering by Stephen Cray. Big thanks to Jeff Rich and Dr. Laura Schlesinger for use of their tape, and to the team at Livewire. Thanks also to Ryan Haas, Elizabeth Miller, and Anna Griffin. Special thanks goes out to Jenna Molster and Will Chase at NPR for searching and allowing us to use the All Things Considered archival tape. Relative fiction and OPB storytelling and podcasts happen only with the support of our members. Help us make stories like this available to everyone by joining as a sustainer or make a single gift at opb.org pod. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.